Amen. We're in the book of Joel tonight in your Old Testament. Page 1050, if you're using a Bible under the seat in front of you. Very, very interesting book. Important. Book of Joel. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we thank you for this time, and I pray now, Lord, that as we look at your word, you would teach us. Lord, I pray that as your people, you would give us great skill in studying your word and understanding your word. Open our eyes to see your sovereign plan. And then, Lord, we thank you for the many ways that you comfort us in your word and you encourage us and you motivate us. And I ask, Lord, that you would do that in our hearts tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So we've moved into that final section of our Old Testament, the prophecy section, and we're actually looking at the 12 minor prophets. There are three prophets that were given messages to Gentile nations, Jonah, Nahum, and Obadiah. We checked them out a few weeks back. There are two prophets that are sent by the Lord with messages to the northern kingdom of Israel. We've checked them out. Tonight we're moving into the prophets that God raised up and sent with messages to the southern kingdom of Judah. And tonight... We start with Joel. Let's put up our historical timeline, and I want you to get a feel for Joel. Here he is down here. I want you to notice that he is one of the earliest writing prophets that we have in the Old Testament. Of all of the prophets, including the major prophets, Joe's one of the earliest. He ministered between 827 and 811 B.C. Now, while he is ministering, there is a northern kingdom of Israel and there is a southern kingdom of Judah. Both those sections of the kingdom are still around. And he is primarily sent with a message to the southern kingdom of Judah. Now, I want you to notice something else here. Joel ministered and prophesied a hundred years before judgment comes upon the northern kingdom of Israel by the Assyrians. So he's giving warning a hundred years before that judgment. He's giving warning 240 years before the Babylonian captivity of Judah and their judgment. So that cataclysmic event is 240 years into his future. And 240 years is a long time. Our country, the United States of America, officially has been a country for 242 years. So I want to give you an idea 
of when he ministered. Now, I've entitled our study in the book of Joel, The Day of the Lord. When you think of the book of Joel, I want you to think of that phrase, the day of the Lord. It's a key phrase in the book of Joel. It shows up five times in the three chapters. The day of the Lord is not a pleasant phrase. It's not like the Lord's day where we think of Sunday and we come and we worship the Lord. It's not that. The Lord or the day of the Lord speaks of judgment. It speaks of a specific time period of judgment where God intervenes in history and pours out divine judgment against a nation or a people. The day of the Lord. A period of judgment. Don't think of it as a literal 24-hour block. It's not. It can be an extended period of time. But in the Bible, it's this technical phrase that speaks to these specific periods of judgment that God does in history. And what's really interesting, in the book of Joel, we have three days of the Lord. There are three specific time periods of judgment in the book of Joel. And so the outline's really easy. There are three chapters. There are three days of the Lord. Three specific times of judgment that God pours out upon the earth. All right. I want to remind you of something before we get into the text. These are, this is a characteristic of Old Testament prophecy that we've talked about before, but I want to remind you. Whenever an Old Testament prophet is giving messages of prophecy, many times he's doing it from different perspectives, from different vantage points. There are some times when a prophet gives a message and it's for his own immediate time. For the day in which he lives. Then there are times when a prophet gives a message and he's looking ahead into the future near term. Usually these captivity and restoration periods with the Assyrians in the northern kingdom of Israel and the Babylonians in the southern kingdom of Judah. And remember, that's how many years in the future for Joel? About 240 years. So there are times when they're speaking to the near-term future. And then there are times when they're giving a word of prophecy that applies way far into the future. A far-term fulfillment. Looking all the way ahead to Christ, the first coming of Christ, the second coming of Christ, the battle of Armageddon, the millennial kingdom, and all of that. So you see that all the time in the Old Testament prophecy. And what's fascinating about the book of Joel is that you have all three perspectives in three chapters. There's one day of the Lord, 
where he's speaking to his own time. There's a second day of the Lord where he's looking ahead 240 years. And then there's a third day of the Lord where he's looking far out into the future. You with me? Okay. So we want to start with that first day of the Lord in his own time. Look at verse 1 of Joel chapter 1. It says, The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Bethuel, Hear this, you elders, and give ear, all you inhabitants of the land. Has anything like this happened in your days, or even in the days of your fathers? Tell your children about it. Let your children tell their children, and their children another generation. What the chewing locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the crawling locust has eaten. And what the crawling locust left, the consuming locust has eaten. Okay, so when Joel writes this prophecy, the land of Judah has just experienced a devastating locust plague. If you were to look at the headlines in the newspaper of that day, it would say locusts invade the land. Nations face severe economic crisis. No end to drought in sight. They have just experienced four waves of locusts which have completely and totally destroyed all of the agricultural produce of their land. It is a national crisis, and it is a national crisis on one of the most serious levels that they've ever experienced in their history. Joel says, have you ever seen anything like this? Nothing like this. Joel says, we're going to be telling our children about this. We're going to be telling our children's children about this. So this is a huge national crisis, I believe, on the same level as a 9-11 or a Pearl Harbor attack or maybe the Great Depression. These cataclysmic events that happen in a nation's history. Unlike any other, you don't forget and you tell succeeding generations. That's what Judah has just experienced. A locust plague. Those are not fun. There's still locust plagues today. Um, you can go on the internet and see videos of them. You got this army of insects coming at you. Many times it's like a cloud. It blocks the sun. The day becomes night. You have these thousands of insects coming and they eat everything. Locust plagues have been known to eat metal and plastic. They come across the land and absolutely wipe it out. It is absolute devastation. I've never seen anything like it except one Sunday many years ago. We were meeting in the tent, and Kim and I were driving, and our 
three small kids at the time. We were driving down the borderland there. And as we got closer to our property, the road was moving. And we got closer and closer and all of these bugs. What had happened is the field across the street, a farmer had leveled it and they had an infestation of locusts. And there was literally a plague crossing the street coming to church that Sunday. It was the craziest thing I've ever seen. That house out there, I've never seen anything like this before, was covered in locusts and spiders. Three inches thick, crawling all around that house. You couldn't get in. You couldn't see windows. You couldn't see the roof, wall, or anything. It was disgusting. And I remember saying, Lord, I'm not an Egyptian. Right? Well, we did pray, by the way, and the locust plague stopped, basically. And we were able to actually meet that Sunday in our tent. But I'll tell you, man, there is nothing like a locust plague. And the way Joel sees it is this was judgment of God upon their land at that time. Judah had turned from the Lord. They were doing wicked things. And the law warned all the way back in Deuteronomy chapter 28. If you turn from the Lord, God says, you shall carry much seed out to the field, but gather little in for the locust shall consume it. Locust shall consume all your trees And the produce of your land. So this was a day of the Lord. A day of judgment. Visited upon the southern kingdom of Judah. And look it impacted everyone. Look at verse 5. Awake you drunkards and weep. Wail all you drinkers of wine because of the new wine. It's been cut off from your mouth. A nation has come up against my land Strong and without number, his teeth are the teeth of a lion. He has the fangs of a fierce lion. And he's laid waste my vine, ruined my fig tree, stripped it bare and thrown it away. Its branches are made white. No more wine for all the partiers. The vineyards have been completely stripped because of this locust plague. Look at verse 9. The grain offering and the drink offering have been cut off from the house of the Lord, the priests mourn who ministered to the Lord. This plague impacted their worship of God in the temple. Everything's gone. They can't bring grain offerings. They can't bring wine offerings to the house of the Lord. By the way, you read later on in the chapter that all the cattle and animals have been impacted. Shut down their whole religious system. Verse 11, be ashamed, you farmers. Wail, you vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the field has perished. End of verse 12. Surely joy has withered away from the sons of men. So here's a nation that got out of line. God sent a plague to wake them up. It was judgment. It was discipline. And Joel calls on everyone to repent. 
In verse 13, gird yourselves and lament, you priests. Wail, you who minister before the altar. Come lie all night in sackcloth, you who minister to my God. For the grain offering and the drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. Look at verse 15. Alas, for the day, for the day of the Lord is at hand. It shall come as destruction from the Almighty. Verse 19. O Lord, to you I cry out, for fire has devoured the open pastures, and a flame has burned all the trees of the field. The beasts of the field also cry out to you, for the water brooks are dried up, and the fire has devoured the open pastures. God will send judgments to wake up a nation. To wake up a church. To wake up a Christian. And you say, well, he's being so mean. He sent this plague and it devastated the land. Yeah, it did. But we know that they all repented. They did get together. They repented. They got right back on the right track. And they are able to once again go into a time of prosperity. As a nation. Very good. We don't like these, but they do wake us up, don't they? Speaking of 9-11, do you remember what this country was like after 9-11? Do you remember Democrats and Republicans singing together? Praying together on the steps of the Capitol building? Churches were packed. People had woken up. People came to the Lord. So these days of judgment can have a very good positive impact on people. Don't you wish we could just stay as a nation close to the Lord? Why do we always have to be woken up? When's the next 9-11 coming? And by the way... When God judges a nation, he doesn't have to do anything big. He can just tweak something. Send a bug. A lot of bugs, but a little bug. Just a little tweak in a nation's economy. Changing gas. Prices, whatever. Changing interest rate. Inflation. And he will do that. To wake up a nation. Okay. That's the first day of the Lord. Let's go to the second day of the Lord. Now remember this time he's looking ahead. In the near term future. Look at verse 1 of chapter 2. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble for the what? Day of the Lord is coming, for it is at hand. A day of darkness and gloominess, a day of dark, of clouds and thick darkness, like the morning clouds spread over the people. A people come 
great and strong, the like of whom has never been, nor will there ever be any such after them, even for many successive generations. Now, Joel says, you think the locust plague that we just had as a nation was bad. If we don't stay true to the Lord, something much worse is coming. A plague of warriors. A nation of enemies that will come into our land. Look how he describes them in verse 3. A fire devours before them and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them. And behind them a desolate wilderness. Surely nothing shall escape them. So here comes an, an army into the land. And before it looks like the Garden of Eden. And after they get done with it, it's raised. It's utterly destroyed. He's actually using the symbology of, of, of the locust plague to describe what this army will be like. Look at verse 6. Before them, the people writhe in pain. All faces are drained of color. They run like mighty men. They climb the wall like men of war. Everyone marches in formation. They do not break ranks. They do not push one another. Everyone marches in his own column, though they lunge between the weapons. They are not cut down. They run to and fro in the city. They run on the wall. They climb into the houses. They enter at the windows like a thief. The earth quakes before them. The heavens tremble. The sun and moon grow dark. The stars diminish their brightness. The Lord gives voice before his army. Notice he's calling that army that's invading is called God's army. God is sending this army. For strong is the one who executes his word. For the day of the Lord is great and very terrible. Who can endure it? So the second day of the Lord, Joel is looking to an invading army. And we know that he's looking 240 years into his future. When the Babylonians will come along and utterly destroy the southern kingdom of Judah. Joel says you need to repent, verse 12. Now therefore, says the Lord, turn to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. So rend your heart, not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he's gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness, and he relents from doing harm. Who knows if he will turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him? So Joel to his generation, get right with the Lord, repent. This is just a vision I've seen at this point. It hasn't happened yet. Turn to the Lord. Perhaps he'll relent. And of course, you remember the story. They did. They turned to the Lord, they repented, and the southern kingdom of Judah has a very impressive line of godly kings. They do fear the Lord for many, many years, but eventually they come to a generation that utterly turns their back on God. And this judgment does come upon them. Now, Joel, in seeing that coming judgment, also sees the restoration. 
that will happen. Look at verse 18. Then the Lord will be zealous for his land and pity his people. The Lord will answer and say to his people, Behold, I will send you grain and new wine and oil, and you will be satisfied by them. I will no longer make you a reproach among the nations, but I will remove far from you that northern army, Babylon, will drive him away into a barren and desolate land with his face toward the eastern sea and his back toward the western sea. His stench will come up and his foul odor will rise because he has done monstrous things. Look at verse 25. So I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten. The crawling locusts, the consuming locusts, and the chewing locusts. My great army which I sent among you. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you and my people shall never be put to shame. So in the second day of the Lord, Joel sees a second judgment, the Babylonians, but he also sees the restoration. After 70 years, the kingdom's allowed back into their land, and they go back into Judah, and they rebuild the temple in Jerusalem and all of that. And they get closer to the Lord. They learn a great lesson. They're purged. You know, before Judah goes to Babylon, they get caught up in all of this idolatry, all of the pagan idols. All right? They go to Babylon in captivity for 70 years. When they come back, the nation of Israel never, ever again gets involved in idolatry. They never do. They stay faithful to the one true God. Idolatry is purged from their life for the rest of their history. It's an amazing thing what discipline and what judgment can do. So again, we look at things like this and we think, oh man, God is so mean. No, our God is like a heavenly father who sometimes has to discipline. And there's fruit that comes from that. Verse 25, this is such a beautiful verse. I want to go back to it again. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the crawling locust, the consuming locust. What a verse. Judah had blown it. They wasted so much time. They go into judgment. But God restores them. And God says, I'm going to restore all those years that the locust has eaten. I love that. God can make up for lost time. God can take a life that has wasted so many years. And bring a fruitfulness to that life 
way more in abundance to the years that were wasted. God can do that. Maybe you're here tonight and, and, and you, you look at some of your years in your life when you weren't following the Lord. Maybe some of you are Christians here tonight. And maybe even recently. You can look back in your life and, and there were years that you wasted. And you wish you could take them back. Listen, if you come back to the Lord, he can make up for lost time. And he can make you more fruitful than you ever dreamed you could possibly be. Overwhelmingly making up for all the time wasted. God can do that. I know he can do that. He did that in my life. You guys know my testimony, most of you. I grew up in a Christian home right about... My freshman year, sophomore year in high school, I started rebelling from the Lord. I got in this whole other crowd and this whole other scene. And I did this whole other scene halfway through my college experience as a born-again Christian rebelling against God, doing my own thing. Four or five years of my life wasted. I look back on that and I think, oh, I wasted it. But I do remember finally coming back to the Lord and he grabbed my life back. I was the guy who was leading keg parties one weekend. And then the next weekend, I was leading Bible studies. All of my upbringing in the church and my Christian heritage came, all the, came back immediately. And God began to use my life in radical ways in college. Most of my friends that, that I was leading the wrong way ended up getting saved. Following Christ even to this day. Oh, my friend. God can make up for lost time. He can do that in a marriage. He can do that in a marriage relationship. Maybe you're here tonight. You're going through a rocky time in your marriage. Maybe there's been a lot of bad years in your marriage. Well, if you both come back to the Lord, he can... He can restore a fruitfulness to that marriage relationship like you never dreamed. We just got to come to him, right? You got to come to him. You got to repent. You got to be, you got to surrender. And stay surrendered. Don't wait for 9-11 in your life. Stay close to him. Love verse 25. Memorize verse 25. Don't ever forget verse 25. Share verse 25 with people in your life. Give them the hope that it's never over. Amen? All right. Day three, the third day of the Lord. And you're going to see that this is clearly... Clearly pointing to a future event. Because there's no uh, fulfillment of it, as you'll see, in history. I believe it's pointing all the way to the last days. The third day of the Lord in the book of Joel is the ultimate day of the Lord. The ultimate reckoning 
the ultimate day of judgment that will be poured out upon the earth. Okay, remember, Jesus came the first time, died on the cross for the sins of the world, rose again the third day, was presented to Israel. Israel, the nation, rejected him. There were some Jews that received him, but Israel formally rejected him. That kicked off the church age. We live in the church age today. As we've discussed in the past, I believe that the church age ends with the rapture of the church. And that begins a seven-year tribulation period. Where God primarily goes back to dealing with Israel. And that seven-year, that final seven-year tribulation period is referred to as the day of the Lord. This time of tribulation. This time when... uh, the Antichrist is revealed and all the nations are gathered and everything heads towards Armageddon. And then Christ comes again at the end of that seven-year tribulation and sets up a kingdom, a millennial reign upon the earth. I think this clearly points to that. Look at verse 28 of chapter 2. This third day of the Lord begins there. Very important scripture. Be sure you're reading it with me. Verse 28. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. And also on my men servants and on my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. And... I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome, what? Day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there shall be deliverance, as the Lord has said. Among the remnant whom the Lord calls. Okay, very, very important passage for us as Christians. Very important. This is a very important prophecy. What does Joel say in the future? There's coming a day when God will pour his flesh out on all, not his flesh, his spirit out on all flesh. There will be no distinguishing among age. It says young daughters, sons. No distinction among gender, men and women. No distinction on economic class, men servants, maid servants, bosses, masters. There is coming a day in the future when God's spirit will be poured out on all men and women. And there'll be evidence. They'll dream dreams. They'll see visions. They'll prophesy. That is very different from the Old Testament arrangement. In the Old Testament, the people of God were not indwelt by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit came upon men and women for specific tasks, for specific periods of time, but didn't indwell. In the New Testament, God's people are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. 
men, women, old, young, from any race, any tribe. Joel says that's coming in the future. He also says in the future, salvation will be offered to anyone. All who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Got it? And then what else did he predict? Cataclysmic signs and wonders in the heavenlies. The the moon turns to blood. The sun goes off. All of these crazy things that you'll see happening in the stars. Okay. Have you heard this prophecy before? Do we read this prophecy anywhere else in the Bible? Does anybody else speak of this prophecy? Peter does in Acts chapter 2. The day of Pentecost, the day the church is born. Remember that story? They're waiting in the upper room. The Holy Spirit's poured out. Tongues of fire. A noise, a wind. The church is born. The people are filled with the Holy Spirit. They begin to speak in tongues, you remember? There's evidence of the filling of the Holy Spirit. And the crowd that's gathered sees all this, and what do they say? Those people must be drunk, right? They must have been drinking. And Peter gets up and he gives a sermon. And he says to the people who've gathered, no, they haven't been drinking. This is what Joel the prophet said. It shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall... He, he quotes that verbatim in Acts chapter 2. Also, we can see that when the church is born, salvation goes out to all. All who call on the name of the Lord shall be saved at that point. Now, on the day of Pentecost, did you see all the signs in the heavenlies? Did the sun go dark? Were there these cataclysmic signs? No. At least it's not recorded. So what in the world's going on here? Now, this is why I love Joel, because in the book of Joel, you see every characteristic of Old Testament prophecy in operation in three chapters. The different perspectives. There's also another characteristic of prophecy that I have spoken of in the past. Remember our bifocal lens? What does a bifocal lens do? You put it on and you can see near. And then as you look up, your eye goes up the lens and you can see where? Further. Many Old Testament prophecies are like that. There's a near partial fulfillment, which is a precursor to the ultimate complete fulfillment. With me? So you will read prophecies in the Old Testament that have a very clear fulfillment in history, and yet it's almost like a double, fuller fulfillment 
later on in history. For instance, Daniel the prophet speaks about the abomination of desolation that will take place in the temple. A few hundred years after Daniel made that prophecy, a guy by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes, a Greek, came in and absolutely destroyed the temple, uh, put a pig, slaughtered a pig in the temple courts, put up an image, the abomination of desolation. Daniel predicted it. It was fulfilled in history under Antiochus Epiphanes. Matthew 24, Jesus then speaking of the last days says, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet. Well, wait a minute. Abomination of desolation happened before. No, there's an example of Antiochus Epiphany is a precursor of what the Antichrist will do later in the temple. And that's exactly what you have going on here. On the day of Pentecost, in the church age, we have a partial fulfillment. All of us as Christians are filled with the Spirit. We give our lives to Jesus Christ and we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit and we also live in the day of salvation where whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. That prophecy has not yet been completely fulfilled. It is true in the church, but listen, it is not true for the nation of Israel. The formal nation of Israel has not yet had the Pentecost experience. Have they? The church has had that experience. In the future, Israel is going to turn to the Lord. They're going to recognize the Lord Jesus Christ one day. And this will also be fulfilled in the formal state of Israel. It's beautiful how it all goes together. Okay, look at verse 1 of chapter 3. It's speaking about what will happen. For behold, in those days and at that time, when I bring back the captives of Judah and Jerusalem, I will also gather all nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat, and I will enter into judgment with them on account of my people, my heritage Israel, whom they've scattered among the nations, they've divided up their land, They've cast lots for my people, have given a boy as a payment for a harlot, and sold a girl for wine that they may drink. On this future day of the Lord, Israel will be gathered back to the land, and the nations will be gathered to a valley of Jehoshaphat. And there will be judgment. Skip down to verse 9. Proclaim this among the nations, prepare for war, wake up the mighty men, let all the men of war draw near, let them come up, beat your plowshares into swords, and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am strong, assemble and come, all you nations, gather together all around, cause your mighty ones to go down there, O Lord. Look at verse 12. Let the nations be wakened and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there, this is God speaking, I will sit 
to judge all the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come, go down, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow. Their wickedness is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and moon will grow dark. The stars will diminish their brightness. The Lord will roar from Zion and utter his voice from Jerusalem. The heavens and earth will shake. But the Lord will be a shelter for his people and the strength of the children of Israel. What is that describing? I think it's very clearly describing that final world battle. Pointing to the end, when we get to the end of the seven-year tribulation period, Jesus gathers the nations. The Valley of Jehoshaphat is the same area as the Valley of Megiddo. Armageddon, it's all there. It's all pointing, again, to that future fulfillment. Joel even talks about the millennial kingdom afterwards. Verse 17, so you know that I am the Lord your God, dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain, Then Jerusalem shall be holy and no alien shall ever pass through her again. And it shall come to pass in that day that the mountains, this is what it'll be like in the millennial kingdom. The mountains shall drip with new wine. The hills shall flow with milk. And all the brooks of Judah shall be flooded with water. A fountain shall flow from the house of the Lord and water the valley of Acacias. So, I see that third day here in Joel referring to this last day scenarios like we've studied so many times in the past. Now, Joel is such an important textbook for us as Christians. It really is, and I'm glad we've gone through this exercise that whole idea of different perspectives from a prophet, you see all three of them in three chapters. Learn from this as you go and you study other books of prophecy. There are other examples with the different perspectives. We also see in the book of Joel this whole idea of a near fulfillment and a future fulfillment, a double fulfillment a partial fulfillment that's a precursor to a fuller fulfillment. Really cool. All of it right here in the book of Joel. Apply these principles to your study of Old Testament prophecy. And then let's remember some very practical things from the book of Joel. Remember how fragile the human race is. Remember how fragile a nation is. Remember how easy it is for God to just tweak something. And for a whole economy to come down. Quick. Just like that. Do you guys remember Sears? I remember about this time the Sears catalog would come. And I'm... I'm Circling things for Christmas, man. All the toys for mom and dad. Sears is going bankrupt. Sears is no more. Gone. Just like that. Life is fragile. The economy is fragile. 
Don't ever forget that, Christian. Now, it's, it's really, really easy for us, even as Christians, to depend upon our own strengths, isn't it? And our jobs and our careers and our insurance and this great nation in which we live and in our safety. But please understand, those things can be pulled out. And if you depend upon that, I believe you're doing what Jesus said. You're building your life on sinking sand. Build your life on the rock. Your dependence upon Christ. Build your life upon him. Depend upon him always. No matter what condition you find yourself in life. Secondly, God can totally make up lost time. Don't ever forget that. Don't ever forget that. Maybe you're here tonight and you need to come back to the Lord and you're thinking, well, if I come back to the Lord, will he take me back? Yes, he will take you back. Will he take my marriage back? Yes, he'll take your marriage back and he'll make it more fruitful. Come to him. But you must come to him. And then the other really wonderful lesson that I was reminded of is I, we, we live in, this, in a wonderful thing called this church age. And it really is awesome that as Christians we have the Holy Spirit living inside of us. Don't forget that. Christian, don't forget that. You are a temple of the Holy Spirit. Think about that every day. If you thought about that every moment of every day, hey, the Holy Spirit, what what does the Holy Spirit want me to do in this situation? Live your life and talk about fruitfulness. Father, as we close, I pray that you would speak to each one as you have chosen, I pray that we would hear the voice of your spirit. Lord, I do pray as people, we would be constant, as your people, we would constantly be reminded of our need to be utterly dependent upon you at all times, no matter how much we have or how much we don't have. Be our rock. Lord, as your people, remind us of the power of your Holy Spirit. I pray that we would hear his whispers daily. We would respond to him. And then, Lord, I want to pray for anyone here tonight who needs to return to you. Maybe that's you. Tonight you need to return to God fully surrendered. And you you could relate with what we talked about. Oh, I've wasted time. I've wasted so many years. Don't worry about that. God will restore the years that the locusts have eaten. 
You just come back to him. Come back to him now. Don't wait. just have a little time of silence right here and I want you if you if you need to come back to the Lord I just want you to do business with the Lord personally just return to him Maybe you don't even know what to pray, but you could just pray something like this. Lord, take me back. Take me back. Restore my life. Lord, I've walked away from you. I've made many messes. But I want to come back to you tonight. Wholeheartedly, full surrender. Take me back, Lord. Fill me again with your spirit. Make my life fruitful. Father, thank you for your grace and your mercy. It's new every morning. You are so good to us. We praise you. It's an honor to serve you. Lord, we even thank you for those times in life when you discipline us to just to wake us up, Lord. Just to wake us up. We praise you and we bless your name. In Jesus' name, amen.